Discord. Yes. All Perfect. good. Excellent. But Excellent. by the way, by the way, teach. How bad is the user experience and the user interface of, of Zoom? Honestly, um, actually, compared to everything else, it's better. Okay. <laughs> Context. So actually, Context. actually, you know, to be absolutely honest about it, um, I've I've used quite a bit of um, Microsoft Teams because other parts of WPP mandate the use of Teams, and I have to say it's partly better simply because it's the one you're most familiar with. So there's always that effect, which is that um, uh, in, in, in its defence, I'd say that. Uh, it's very interesting because it's pretty good if you're a frequent user, but if you're an infrequent user, I agree with you. It's it, it's fairly flawed, and I th always think you know, and I, and I suppose in a way, they've been quite clever because the meeting host, who's more likely to be a frequent user, has a more complex interface than the guest does, mm. which probably makes sense. Um, yeah. And actually, in fairness to them, um, uh, in many respects, uh, the in the early days, the uh, what you might call the non-expert user experience of Zoom was a hell of a lot better than anybody else. You could just click on a link and you're in the meeting, for example. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, I mean, the really appalling user experience is things like email is atrocious. Calendaring oh, yeah. is very, very bad. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and actually um, other examples of cases, you know, there are a lot of things which I think are a disaster in technology because they're good enough to prevent anybody competing, but they're not good enough to change the world. And okay. a, classic, a classic example of that kind of technological um, Mexican standoff, uh, I think happens with things like Bluetooth. Bluetooth isn't really good enough, is it? No. Right, right. Yeah. There should have been a much, much better way to make Bluetooth work. And for some reason, okay, you know, Bluetooth was developed a bit too early. It became ubiquitous. Every device has Bluetooth. It would take you, you know, it would take you decades to try and knock Bluetooth off its perch. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that one of the biggest things that Spotify does of value to me is the ability, without leaving the app, to change the speaker, okay? Mm. Now, what's interesting about that is nobody else does this. Um, this really fascinates me. So why doesn't say, well, Audible, Audible doesn't let me do that. Okay. I can't just go, okay, Audible, I, I, I want you to play this now through my hi-fi behind me, which is sort of that orange thing. You, you can just see the edge of it there, um, yeah. rather than playing it through my headphones. And to do that, I have to leave, go into Bluetooth, connect, wait. Okay. And other technologies, yeah, I think there's a whole list of technologies which are, and I call it maximally non-viable product, which is it's good enough to occupy and, and basically, uh, you know, and you probably see this in evolution, to be absolutely honest. You know, yeah. things that basically, you know, nothing else can compete because there's this dominant force. And it leads to a kind of evolutionary dead end. That reminds me of Moore's work on crossing the chasm, where you know you have something that 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 has crossed the chasm, mm -hmm. and 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 because the adoption is so large, um, that that the that the first um, new uh, new entrants in the market have, have difficulty catching up, even though they, they might be better. I wonder, I wonder, um, does the same logic apply to uh, Betamax versus VHR as well? Yeah, B undoubtedly, what happened with VHS? Well, I've got it already. Strangely, um, what happened with VHS? Apparently. Um, a bit of it was porn, okay, which is you could get porn on VHS, but you couldn't get porn on Betamax. Wow. Um, and, and no, of course, nobody ever spoke about that as being one mm. of the big influences that gave VHS dominance. Yeah. But then you had what's called a network effect, where essentially, you know, if you went to your local video rental stall, for actually recording your own programs, Betamax was better than VHS, and a Philips format called Video 2000, I think, mm. was actually better than Betamax. Right. Wow. But unfortunately, Sony made Betamax exclusive to Sony devices. Um, Philips made Video 2000 exclusive to Philips devices. And there was a range of competing manufacturers in the VHS space. And so VHS then started off with kind of 55% of the market or 60% because Sony was a very powerful brand back then, not quite so much Philips. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened is once you had 60%, it meant that at your video rental store, 80% of the titles were in um, VHS and only 20% were in Betamax. And so it was a feedback loop, a positive feedback loop between video rental stores, porn, okay, which nobody talked about, okay, because nobody ever said, yeah. you know, nobody yeah. in market research ever said, yeah, I, yeah. I, I would actually get Betamax for its superior recording you know, possibilities. <laughs> 
But when it comes to filth, you know, Uchi, it's another Uchi starter. Uchi Mama, Mama 42. Exactly, you know, my hentai connection doesn't play on, you know, right? Okay. Yeah. Non nonsense. That's your that's your nonsense. Nonsense, concept. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so so it, it then basically meant that, that Philips went to one percent of the market, Sony went to ten. There's an anomaly, by the way, interestingly, which is for a long time, obviously this is irrelevant now, for about 15, 20 years, uh, Betamax was the dominant format in Latin America. And it must have just been some geographical accident where in Latin America, Sony had a really successful sales drive. So it went the other way. I'd be really wow. interesting to trace the origins of that. But it's also important. Douglas McWilliams makes the point that one of the great breaks on technological progress. And one of the most interesting things is the penetration of the domestic telephone in the United States. I think it took from 1890 or 1888, okay, when Bell was founded, to about 1950, before the telephone reached 50% of American households. And the problem was that there were too many people who didn't know anybody else with a phone. And I said oh, the same yeah. thing about mobile phones. If mobile yeah. phones hadn't allowed you to call landlines, okay, um, it would have taken an extra 10 years for them to take off. Because yeah. in the early stages, I, I remember where I had a very early mobile phone and I borrowed mobile phones from the company because in the very early days, the company had this kind of pool of eight mobiles. And if you had to go on a business trip, you'd sign one out for the day, you see. And what was really interesting there, and this really was interesting, okay, uh, is that um, uh, what, what really fascinates me is that in the early days, a mobile to mobile call was a real rarity. So you called your, your colleagues back at their desk, you see, on, from the mobile. And if you ever made a mobile-to-mobile -mobile call, that was like the first four minutes of the call was spent going, are you on your mobile? I'm on my mobile too. I'm on a boat. You know, and the whole conversation was about the fact that both of you were out of doors. And this was unbelievably fucking amazing. And so, so it's very, this network effect is really interesting. So is the, I think that video conferencing was set back by 10 years. I mean, the pandemic overcame this problem, okay? But I think video calling was set back about eight, five or six years by the fact that Skype, Google, you know, Google Duo, Google Meet, um, uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, okay, Skype. They were all all right, but they weren't good enough to make a difference. Yeah. And so they were big enough to keep other people out of the market. They also made a fundamental mistake, by the way. I, I you know, I also think things like go to meeting were just a bit too unwieldy, right? Right. Or, yeah. you know, right. Or WebEx, yeah. right? Yeah. But I think the fundamental mistake was that they also all adopted the phone call model where I ring you, right? Now, mm. in, for my kids, that's acceptable behavior. You know, my kids might video call one of their friends or they might video call their grandparents, right? Yeah. In yeah. a business setting, it's a total no-no, right? If I'm in a total panic and I'm having, you know, uh, you know, a massive debate and therefore I'm, you know, I'm two minutes late for the meeting because I'm involved in some meeting and you ring me and go, hi, right? It's yeah. a total social gaffe. Yeah. And so the whole Skype format was totally inappropriate and then there are a load of other things, which is that um, another one was perceptual. It was simply a perceptual problem. Now, let me explain this, okay? First of all, most video meetings took place in the early days as an alternative to a physical meeting. In other words, the physical meeting was possible and you decided to hold it over video. And that way, it wasn't quite as good as a physical meeting. And what people noticed was this is like a physical meeting, but it's not as good. Okay. What's happened now is people realize, well, you know, I, I always say when people go, it's not as good as meeting face to face. I say, yeah, it's not as good as meeting face to face. Obviously, like a phone call isn't as good as like sex. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. We know that. What the point is, is the opportunity cost, which is there yeah. are now hundreds of meetings taking place, which would never have happened at all. Had, had we not done video? Because I mean, yeah. just, just meeting Context now. Frame is okay. way off. So this meeting now would have involved, you know, six weeks to organize and it would have cost 300 quid in flight costs. Right. So, you know, realistically, it was probably not going to happen for a year and a half. You know, you'd have to wait until there were four other things taking you to London. I'd have to wait until I got a paid speaking event in Holland. Then I get a paid speaking event in Holland, but it was at five o'clock and I'd missed the last flight back. So the only, you know, so we'd only get to meet for 10 minutes. And so it's always worth remembering a cost is always more visible than an opportunity cost. Uh, 
I, I, I love that. I love that. I love that. And, but it's so hard to argue against because one is tangible and the other isn't. The other mm. feels loose, hypothetical. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's the case that you make in, in, uh, in alchemy. Uh, you, you make this case early in the book, I believe maybe chapter one or something. Uh, you, you talk about um, um, in advertising how cute, cute animals, for example, can yeah. uh, have a higher, higher effectiveness than something which is logical. But, you know, it's super hard to uh, present such an idea to a board or your, or your airplane example. You know, we should talk about cucumbers versus like our new fancy airplanes. And they're like, Rory, I don't know what you're smoking, but like yeah, give no, no, no. a little bit of that. Oh, oh the guy, the marketing guy. Um, in BA, very good guy, marketing and customer experience guy, was Dutch, yeah? And every time he'd come up with these things, people being Dutch, you're stereotyped as a pot smoker, you see? So, you know, right? So everybody would go, Herman, what have you been smoking? <laughs> say, right, okay. And he said, I get that like twice a day, you know? And, um, uh, you know, uh, being highly creative and Dutch is a double jeopardy because yes. not only not only does nobody understand what you're saying, but they assume you're under the influence of drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, let me um, let me ask you a question because I've I've uh, I, not only have I seen all of your work, I've studied everything uh, you've ever put out extensively, so I can like um, memorize it forwards, backwards, and whatever. Um, there is one thing that uh, I wanted to ask you that I've I've never seen you talk about or um, uh, or have someone um, seen ask you, um, which is you talk about uh, technological economic value creation and psychological economic value yeah. creation, right? Yeah, the Austrians, but, the Austrians are right about this all along. It's in the head. Yeah. If the person doesn't yes. want to buy it, you haven't got a product. Right? Exactly, exactly. So here's my question. Um, while, it, while it's certainly true that there are two ways to create economic value, um, do it through technological means, do it through fucking with perception. Here's, here's my, my question. When you do it through techno technological means, you have a moat built in, in a way that you might not have um, in psychological, uh, psychological means. How That's do you true. protect yourself that true. against that? Uh, no, absolutely fair. Um, and I think, I mean, it's worth remembering, there is trademark law, you know, there's, there's intellectual property protection. Yeah, Sarah um, Blakely with Spanx or, or whatever. I, I mean, it's interesting where I don't think Uber patented the map, right? Mm. But the map caused Uber to grow to a point where it actually enjoyed network effects. Okay, so so you're saying yeah. speed of growth can create a first yeah. uh, so, first so actually, advantage. That, that actually, in Austrian economics, that's called Schumpeterian rent. And it's the idea that the entrepreneur, even if he can't legally protect his, in, his idea, by establishing it first, enjoys a perceptual advantage over his competitors. In the same way that, you know, in a way, right, um, okay, Bud, Budweiser has a hugely valuable van, it has a huge, hugely valuable trademark, but it also enjoys... You know, heritage, you know, there are heritage advantages, there are advantages over Coca-Cola's, Coca-Cola's massive advantage is the fact that because it was the first universally available carbonated drink, it's the only thing you can ask for confidently anywhere and not expect them to say no. Apart from yeah. water, maybe. Apart from water, yeah. maybe. Okay, so you can go to a Tanzanian beach shack and you can go to a Michelin-starred restaurant in Paris and you can say, I, I'd like this, and I like a Diet Coke. And if they say we don't have Coca-Cola, it's their fault, not yours. Yeah. You know, if I ask for Dr. Pepper, right, they can be like, sure, you know, you are the absurd. <laughs> Le Dr. Pepper. Le Dr. Pepper in our fine establishment. Right? Okay. Whereas, whereas Coke, they'd look like idiots if they didn't sell it. They, you know, now actually, Whole Foods doesn't sell it, but that's because they're consciously being assholes, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally think it's ridiculous. Okay, so let me ask you, uh, ask you this, Teach. Um, say Pepsi came to Ogilvy and they and they ask you, okay, we want to once and for all finally disrupt Coca-Cola. Like, uh, is that even possible? Because Dave no, Trump, he the, always talks about uh, about brand leader and, and, and market cap and the different uh, approaches you need to use. They're the same people buying it, right? Okay, yeah. so, you know, I actually met some. I had a very close friend who applied for a job at Coke. And Coke are super, like, weird about this. So... Uh, this guy was saying to my friend, he said, um, he said, it drives my daughters crazy because if we're in a restaurant and we've sat down and we've got a table and I order a Coke and they say, we only got Pepsi, 
I'm out of there, right? So this Coke guy who worked for Coke would actually walk out of a restaurant having booked and reserved a table because they serve Pepsi, not Coke, right? Now, yeah. okay, now nobody in, a, in the consumer space <laughs> is really like that, okay? The drinks yeah. are substitutable. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, there are yeah. a whole bunch of factors, one of which is that if you serve Pepsi, not Coke, one of which is that McDonald's has to had to, you know, basically say to 10 million customers a day uh, when they got rid of Coke, they said, we have McDonald's cola or we have Pepsi. OK, and, you know, that's just makes them look slightly ridiculous. It also makes you look slightly cheap, to be honest. Yeah. So there is yeah. there is a kind of establishment reputation question there. Uh, you know, well, we've only got Pepsi. Is that all right? Okay. And um, so there's all that stuff going on. It's really just a network effect. And you can, I mean, it's worth remembering, by the way, uh, in different geographies, the network effect's different. So in, yeah. uh, in WhatsApp, text, iMessage. Yeah, you got it exactly. So you've got um, in Latin America, WhatsApp was massive, wasn't it? Yeah, Britain, in Europe as well. Britain was a total mess because it yeah. was a complete div equal divide between three places. And so some people used Messenger, some people used SMS, obviously, some people used WhatsApp. And it, we still haven't got a default um, uh, consensus on which the default messaging app is. And that's partly because in the UK, texting SMS became free as part of your package very early on. In Latin yeah. America, it was a major expense. So when yeah. WhatsApp came in with the over-the-air texting service, it captured Latin America by storm, you see. Same in Holland. Same in Holland, yeah, interesting. Because in the yeah. UK, nobody would have... I mean, it's not even noticed now. It just goes unlimited texts. Pic picture messaging they charge for, but basic text messaging, or it's like 500 a month, in which case nobody other than the weirdo really hits their threshold, you know. Um, and so in Britain, the text wasn't really seen as a, as a price-sensitive entity because it was all part of your mobile package anyway. Um, no, the providers in Holland were super, super cheap. I used to work uh, in, a, in a call center when I was young, and they, they used to instruct us with this. This also shows all, uh, the disconnect between like management and like the people who are actually in the, in yeah. the trenches. Um, but they used to like uh, give us like the sales script and whatever, and, and, and they, they tried to like really... Uh, um, um, encourage us to use the following value proposition. Hey, uh, you, you, we will give you unlimited texting. And this was like uh, uh, years after um, you had WhatsApp and whatever. And everyone's like, okay, gee, thanks. It's, it's almost insulting. You're, 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 you're trying to look cool and, and like uh, be like, we're giving you a gift, but you're not giving us a gift at all. You're only doing it because you know no one will take advantage of it. That's, by the way, that ties into your whole uh, concept, uh, uh, context of a gift where it's like the context matters. You know, you, you can't yes, pay exactly. your wife for sex, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. No, customers so it, were almost so, insulted. Yeah. I mean, the Schumpeterian thing is if you, if you're the first mover uh, and all, and, and of course, the, the Austrian would describe the most successful innovation as the one that actually is a success in marketing terms, not the mm. one that's a success in objective terms. Mm. And so because of that, they say the first person to crack this market and cracking a market might be a combination of psychology, technology or one or the other. OK, gets disproportionate gains through first mover advantage, network effects, fame. You know, there's a simple chronological form of and they call that Schumpeterian rent, which is the reward you get for being an entrepreneur by being first in a category. Interesting. Interesting. I actually read a paper on that on uh, first mover advantage. Um, it, it was interesting. They, um, the authors um, made, a ma uh, made a matrix in uh, different types of markets um, and the relationship that it had with um, first mover advantage and the importance of it. And, and in certain markets, a first mover advantage can be um, a, a very useful advantage. But in other markets, um, uh, it's kind of like um, you have this, this no, ma uh, no man's land and, and you send someone out and he's... he's the probability of, of stepping on a, on, on a landmine or whatever is like almost one. So it's, it's almost better to like wait and see a little bit. Um, uh, let someone uh, ex uh, step on a landmine, it explodes and then you follow them. But, but it, that's in a very high risk market where like the product market fit is very complicated between technology and the market adoption. No, and actually, in fairness, it's quite often a second mover advantage because yeah. the first person establishes the category and then yeah. the second person gets all the attention. You know, um, uh, Facebook, Facebook wasn't the first. Google wasn't the first. Google was like search, search engine 12. Facebook was like uh, uh, um, 
social uh, social platform number four or five or whatever. You, no, no, um, no. I so mean, you, MySpace. MySpace was, you know, I mean, huge. News International paid something like you know a billion or something for MySpace, and of course, yeah, it's. Yeah. I don't know if they've actually turned it off. Maybe it still exists. I believe I saw an article like two or two years ago or something that uh, the founders might have bought it back, but I'm not 100% sure. Good grief. That's interesting. something like that. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And of course, right. the problem uh, with MySpace was probably the user experience, which is if you're a teenager with no aesthetic yes. sense, right, yeah. it was great fun because you could. it was like a scrapbook. But people yeah. over 25 didn't want a scrapbook, really. Yeah. The, 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 the um, most favorable hypothesis on why it failed was that um, Facebook didn't succeed. Um, Facebook was the only only viable alternative because MySpace just started sucking so bad. And the reason why is because they had a huge technical debt. So the website became very slow and uh, almost uh, to the point of being unusable, which is why users um, started to migrate because Facebook was so much easier. I see. I didn't realize yeah. that. Oh, so actually there was partly a... They shut themselves okay. essentially. Fascinating. Yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah. Let, let me ask you a question because we talked about uh, Austrian economics and Austrian economics um, um, relies heavily on uh, deduction, whereas in advertising, uh, we're, we're, we're in favor with direct response of, of a more uh, empirical, inductive type of reasoning. So like, how, yes. how do we, how do we uh, square those two? Well, my great thing there is a real problem with inductive reasoning. Okay. It's really simple. Okay. And I put it very simply the other day on Twitter, which is there are far more good ideas that you can post-rationalize and there are good ideas that you can pre-rationalize. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and that actually applies to scientific discovery as well. Far more of them are actually made through accident, accidents than by intention. Yeah, the same is probably true for startups as well. Because one of the great things, one of the great reasons, I think, to be in marketing rather than to be in academic behavioral science is that we perform accidental behavioral experiments all the time, which are paid for, right? Mm. Now, in, 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 in academia, you've got to make a case for making the experiment yeah. before the experiment takes place, right? Yeah, so it's more, it's more deductive in a sense. Whereas what happens in business is you, you, get, you do something, you had no intention of finding out this thing, and you look at it and go, what the fuck is that? Right? <laughs> right you know. That can be right. Yeah. And so essentially, you know, the, the whole obsession on, I, I always get deductive and inductive reasoning confused, but the whole obsession with that kind of sequential reasoning is, and, and in creative and advertising agencies, I don't believe in process. I think the process is iterative and parallel. I don't think it's sequential. Because yeah. let me give you an example. It happened, it happened beautifully, actually, uh, three days ago. So um, uh, there was a, an approach which the planners were really interested in, but they rejected because they said the problem with this approach is it basically results in this dead end. Now, I used to be a copywriter for 15 years, and I know that actually um, the simple lesson of being a copywriter is changing the sentence very slightly can, can, lead to a, can have a huge effect. And I said, yes. no, 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 yeah. no, 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 you've got it wrong because, right, okay. Um, so the problem was, I think it was like, it was like Kent, it, which is my part of the UK is known as the Garden of England, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a very valuable property because it emphasizes the place's beauty. And they wanted to emphasize the Garden of England because it's close to London. It's da, 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 okay. And they said, the trouble is, if you say, you know, where your business grows, right? Um, uh, all of the people who have businesses in Kent get in touch with the people doing the advertising and say, well, my business is doing fucking appallingly. Where the hell are you helping me? You know, you're doing all these ads trying to encourage other competitors to move to Kent, right? And my business is in shit, <laughs> right? And so we said, okay, we were basically writing off this avenue of attack. Yeah. And then I suddenly, it was a total kind of like, okay, how do you say this? And you, you're experimenting in your head. And you go, hold on, if you say grow your business here, right? I grow garden, right? That's the link, okay? The link is the Garden of England growth. That's the basic sort of message you want to convey. If you make it the imperative and you say grow your garden here, grow your business here, okay, um, then actually the whole problem goes away. Wow. You know what it reminds me of? Yeah. Dave Trott's Docklands. What was Dave Trott? Oh, yeah, hold on. You'll have to remind me about this. This is really fascinating, which was... Um, 
the 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 Docklands campaign. No one uh, wanted to be in a Docklands, but they they uh, repositioned it as being like uh, basically the cool place. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it went from uncool to cool. And it was. It, I mean, they they did some real. Um, uh, I can send you, know, you the campaign. Funnily enough, there was another campaign for Docklands done by um, the guy Tony Brignall, who worked at Abbot Mead Vickers, and it's called "Are You a Knocker or a Docker." And it basically had a list of thick knockers and dockers and knockers were kind of people who were skeptical. You know, they, they thought Concord should never have been built, which they're probably right, by the way. Um, you know, <laughs> they thought, you know, you know, they were kind of people who weren't interested in this. You know, they were Luddites, basically. And so you had the knocker versus the docker. And, and there were just sort of like 30 things left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And it was Tony Brignall did it. And that was an equally good campaign. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. Talking about uh, Abbott's agency, in your interview with, uh, what's his name? Chris, I believe, from uh, 42 Courses. The story that you, that, that you told about the, yours until the, uh, yours till the cows come home, Davey Abbott. Davey Abbott, yeah. yeah. What? Yeah, so they nicked, they basically <laughs> nicked a load of writing paper of Abbott and Vicar. Oh, okay. yeah. And what's brilliant, okay, what's brilliant about that is, okay, um, if you'd attempted to fake it, you would have got it. It would have worked, I think, but it would have got you into trouble. So they go, okay, how do we break the rules here? How do we basically cheat without cheating? And the way to do it is to do it in such a ridiculous way. So this is where humor basically breaks a rule. Can you, can you steal writing paper from Abbott Mead Vickers and pretend to be David Abbott and thereby, get, and thereby recommend people for interview, right? Well, the answer to that question in conventional logic is no. Because if you got found out, which you might be, right, okay, um, you might get into trouble. And also, it's an unethical way to do it. But it really was. Uh, it, it was written like in like, ridiculous handwriting. I think, so Davy Abbott actually had a smiley face in the tail of the Y, right? And that's it was that's like, even funnier. That's even funnier if you know what he looks like. It's even, no, no, because he was the most precise kind of... <laughs> I mean, he was the, the wonderful thing was he was the complete opposite of the stereotype of a creative person. I mean, he was very, very conventional in his own personal life, actually. Um, and the brilliant thing was, um, hi, it was something like, you know, hi, Bill, these guys came, these guys showed me their book and I thought, fuck me. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think he said, he said, unfortunately, they, I haven't got any room at my gaff at the moment. So I thought you might be interested. And then it was their drum, which is like an East End slang for flat, right? Uh, uh, I, I, yeah. What is it? Drum and bat or something? I don't know. It's like drum and bat flat. I mean, it's some rhyming slang. Yeah. Thing, David I, Abbott, I, I, you know. So the idea good. of David Abbott so saying, good. you know, I went home and the old trouble and strife is giving me a bit of, you know. I mean, you know, and so, so a, their drum is at like 020745, you know, whatever. Yours till the cows come home, Davy Abbott. You know? <laughs> and it was, it was such a brilliant, brilliant thing. Um, because, and, and it was just, and that's what I mean about the opposite of a good idea, you know, that actually, yeah. that, um, and one of the most important things is humour as a creative device. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. In, in my essays, um, um, like, like right now, my work is like 50-50. Right now, 50% is uh, 50 like I'm trying to create this field and, and, and create the models and whatever and do, do something similar to BJ Fogg uh, in my own field. And like the other half of my work is like more, uh, a little bit like loose and a little bit like riffing on ideas and, and just seeing, like thinking on paper essentially. Um, but one of the things that I do and, and talk about a lot is like the, 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 the scary... Um, the scary mapping, the scary bijection between um, us in the entrepreneurial world and like stand-up comics. It's eerily similar. It's so crazy because um, you talked about menu stress, right? Uh, and, and you talked about like being in the airport and, 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 and being nervous because you have a row of people and, they're, and, and you feel their, their eyes piercing. A, a comic would look at that. Jerry Seinfeld always says, um, you, 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 you're, you live your life and you look for the funny in situations. And I feel like we're so close, but what we do is we look for the solution. So we see the same situation and we start thinking about it from an, from an entrepreneurship perspective, like um, how can we address this? How can we solve this particular problem in a way that, that, that might even create um, economic resources, which you, know, you, you wanna be profitable as a company. And a comedian looks at that very same situation and they're trying to find the funny. So it, it, it's so similar.
So the classic example is benign violation theory of humor is the theory that it's like tickling or play fighting among lion cubs, okay, which is they have to set a context in which one lion can attack the other in play fighting without it being interpreted as a threat. Okay, because you need to practice fighting to be good at real fighting, but you don't want your practice to turn into a real fight. I mean, you know, imagine if I went in an imaginary spa with a boxer and he just basically whacked me in the face, right? Okay, I would never, right? Okay, I, I would be, you know, I'd probably be killed. Okay, right. So you have to set this environment where we're doing I don't know. this. You, you see, I, I see. I saw you know, during your keynote. You see, you're quite loose and nimble. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> but you, what you do, what it is, is you're doing it, but you're not doing it for real. And you and so in, in a lot of humor, you're being rude, but you're not being rude. So I think it's two examples, actually. If you take David Abbott's uh, Economist thing, which is, I never read The Economist, management trainee aged 42, okay? Well, there's a bit of knowing humor in that because a lot of people wouldn't know that a management trainee aged 42 is a bit late to be getting going. And also, there are a lot of people, actually, it's slightly nasty ad if you decode it because there are a lot of people in life who'd be delighted to be put on a management training course at the age of 42, you know, but not the kind of person who The Economist was trying to reach. Yeah. But if you said, basically, if you don't read The Economist, you're a loser, right? Yeah. We'd react to that appallingly. Yeah. Okay? We go, fuck yeah. you. You know, bunch of, yeah. you know, basically, I haven't read The Economist. Uh, you know, I run extremely successful light engineering works in the way, you know. Uh, right, right, okay. You just basically react to that with fuck you. Whereas if you say it funny, okay, you get away with it. And we absorb the message in a way yeah. that doesn't prompt uh, an immune reaction, as it were. Oh, that's so good. Jerry Seinfeld, uh, in, in terms of comedy, he, he calls it like uh, tap dancing and, and yes. missing the laser beams. That, so exactly that. It's going, it's exactly, and that's why it becomes, that's why the political correctness thing in comedy becomes really dubious. Because yes. if you accept benign violation theory, there is going to be a bit of violation going on, right? Yeah. And so, you know, if you take, um, uh, you know, Jim Jeffries, Australian guy who's very big in the States now, Um, and actually, it's interesting to see how many British and Australian people make it in American comedy now, because you can kind of go to places where an American couldn't quite. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, and he yeah. talks about guns and he goes, look, there's a perfectly good reason for the Second Amendment. Okay, guns are cool. I like guns. <laughs> okay, right? I get that. Don't take away my fucking guns. I get that, that would, argument. That said. would be a good creative campaign. Yeah, exactly. And guns are, you know, guns are really fucking cool. Right. Yeah. I mean, they are guns off. You know, I mean, you know. You know, you know, I have to say, if I were in the United States and I was invited to go out, you know, in the desert and fire an AK-47 at oil drums, you know, I'd really enjoy that, right? True. And so, um, but the, the, the thing is, you can go in and you can, uh, tap dancing between the laser beams is exactly the right description, yeah. Yeah. So you go far enough and, you know, and absurd enough. And it, you might even argue that it's a an evolutionary reward for being able to stray out of uh, social constraints on thinking and speech. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it could I, be, it's both two things. It makes it possible and it rewards, but the fact that we enjoy laughing also means that it rewards you for doing it. Interesting. If you look at um, Clay Christensen's uh, frameworks, uh, framework of job to be done, um, the job of a comedian is essentially make people laugh. Like that's it. Yeah, and if you yeah. if you have that as your objective, then uh, all of the all the other stuff it will work itself out because you need to write uh, creative material in order to have enough material that you can go on stage, test it, whatever. Um, what would you say is is our job, like in in entrepreneurship and creative? Is it now? I don't want to influence you. Just what, what's your take the on that? Like the what's the thing is it's it's a behavioral science challenge because I've got to make people laugh, right? Mm-hmm. Now the means by which I can I can deploy to achieve that end are various. It's True. hugely context dependent. So Jimmy Carr, I don't know if you know Jimmy Carr, he's an outlier because no. he wears a suit, which is really weird. Mm-hmm. Most mm-hmm. comedians, it helps if you're kind of fat or scruffy or have some kind of you know outsider status, rather like you know the the jester, yeah. you know, or the dwarf or something, right? Yes. Uh, in uh, you know in medieval. Uh, court society you know you had this person the jester who was yeah, kind of yeah, licensed yeah. to say things that nobody else could say yeah 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 
And um, uh, so it, it is, it is uh, but the interesting thing is, the one thing comedians do is they experiment a lot and they experiment internally. Um, and they also experiment with audiences. So Stuart Lee talks about this process where he would, there was something where, you know, he wanted to, Gary Lineker, who's a football commentator, okay. And he ended up with like a velvet owl. But he said he'd been through about 10 iterations before he decided that Velvet Owl was funny. And Douglas yeah. Adams, who wrote the Hitchhikers books, used to go and get P.G. Woodhouse books. And whenever he laughed particularly much at a paragraph, he'd spend like an hour reverse engineering what it was that made the sentence funny. I do the same thing with copy. Gary Helbert taught yeah. me that. He, he said, he said, whenever something aligns with you and, 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 and from an economy, economy system, one perspective, you know, as a consumer, you're triggered, like, like, like uh, tear it out of the magazine or, or like um, uh, copy it into a notion or Google docs or, or whatever, you know, and really try to uh, reverse engineer, like what happened there. Um, um, use your system two to see what happened in the system one uh, perspective, essentially. Yeah. Because it's like it's like um, what you said. Um, there's there's a quote. Um, it's attributed attributed to Mark Twain, but he wasn't the one who said it first. But it doesn't matter. But it's it never like is. Uh, the, yeah, the, the difference between the right word is uh, the difference between lightning and the lightning bug, or something like that. But like these tiny tweaks can have a huge yeah, impact. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's really yeah. useful. And I've noticed that time and time again. This is why I don't think you can make. I don't think you can have planning as a precursor to the creative process because you need to have creative people going, I get where you're driving out there, but the trouble, you know, and then someone can say, I don't think this route really works creatively because I don't know how to express it. And one person can yeah. say, but if you add the word probably, it does work. You know, you, you have, and that's the lightning bolt thing. Uh, are you just, just do it if you think about it, okay? Just do it was really a celebrity ad campaign where the real message they wanted to say was Michael Jordan did it using Nike, right? Yes. Now, if you say Michael Jordan did this with Nike, right? Okay, it's a totally useless message because it says, yeah, yeah well, I'm not Michael fucking Jordan. You know, what the hell do you know? What If you turn that into, instead of Michael Jordan did it, you turn it into just do it, the whole meaning is completely transformed. Let me ask you a question real quick. Um, that first sentence, uh, that, that first um, concept, Michael Jordan did it. Um, do we know um, ex ante? Do we know ex ante that it's, it's not going to work? Or should we still like test it and, and see what happens because weird ideas can work and whatever? Or should you say like, okay, the probability is, is low. Uh, it's probably not worth testing. Uh, what's the right way to think about that? I think the only thing you can do is you have to say, okay, there has to be a iterative thing um, or a parallel thing between um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the crafting of the message and the voicing of the message. Yeah. Because if you think about yeah. it, the, the Nike campaign was a celebrity campaign, totally, totally standard celebrity campaign. It basically said Michael Jordan did it wearing Nike. Yeah, we, we've had those since like when? The 20s yeah, or something? You know, Oh, I mean, nineteenth uh, century. I mean, they were often yeah. in the nineteenth century. You yeah. know, soap brands were actually advertised by aristocrats. You know, David Ogilvy actually said. David Ogilvy actually said that he, he wasn't he wasn't a fan of uh, using celebrities. He had a. Uh, he yeah he was too, he was wrong about that actually, but also okay. he you know he believed in celebrities if they had expertise in the area. So he said it was totally okay to use um, Lewis Hamilton to talk about motor oil. OK, that was OK. What he wasn't on fa in favor of was using Jimmy Carr to talk about motor oil. OK, yeah. So, yeah, so he did he did accept celebrities, but he believed they should be conveying some sort of expertise or skin in the game. So actually, David Ogilvy wouldn't have opposed the Nike campaign because he said it was showing expert basketball players wearing Nike clothing. OK, um, since we're on the topic of Ogilvy, do you have any uh, thoughts on... Um, the New York School of, uh, of Advertising versus Chicago School of Advertising. So, so uh, Ogilvy and, and Leo Burnett and, and Burnbeck and uh, their different views. Uh, have you any? Yeah, the, have you I mean, the, 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 the original home of advertising, which is Lord and Thomas uh, with uh, Lasker, Albert Lasker, mm. uh, was Chicago. And that eventually oh. turned into Foot Cone and Belding. Um, uh, am, I, am I wrong? I, I thought it was NWA, uh, Ayer and Son. Yeah, sorry. NWA, was, sorry, NWA was the oldest agency. Okay. The real 
the real scale and explosion happened first in Chicago, I think, with Lord and Thomas. I see. I where see. Claude Hopkins, if I'm right, Claude Hopkins was paid $185,000 a year as a copywriter in 1920, right? Whoa. What's that, what's okay. that like now in this like uh, million? You'd right have now? to say it's like $6 million. I mean, it's like 5 or $6 million a year. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's almost impossible wow. to, yeah. Um, and, and Lord and Thomas, and, and David Ogilvy was always flattered that Burn, sorry, that Leo Burnett said that Ogilvy was the only New York agency that who understood Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I actually, I think, uh, I mean, what you had, I suppose, in New York was the Burnback Revolution. You had Ogilvy, etc. You had all those agencies, like you know, um, the whole host of them. And that was where the creative revolution was considered to have taken place. But I think that was a relatively um, trivial creative revolution compared to the Chicago School Revolution. Mm. You know, and actually, I think Claude Hopkins, of course, wrote Scientific Advertising, which is a book still worth reading. Uh, it's worth remembering that um, J. Walter Thompson's... Um, uh, oh, God. Uh, uh, Howard Luck Gossage was in San Francisco. Um, J. Walter Thompson's guy, um, Young, James Webb Young. He was, I think, at J. Walter Thompson's Chicago rather than J. Walter Thompson, New York, if I've got that right. Mm. And so actually Chicago really, and it, of course it's the spiritual home of package goods. That's why. Yeah. Uh, because it's actually, you know, you, you've got, you've got S.C. Johnson, all of those things, you know, the package goods are really Chicago brands. Uh, okay, yeah. Coke, Coke's Atlanta, but because it was the railhead, you see, it was the distribution center. So if you wanted to go national, because I mean, essentially, Route 66, if you think about it, goes from Chicago to LA. Mm. And you're going to say, well, you know, you'd think America's main road would go from New York to LA, but that was yeah. too far, that was too far to drive, effectively. Yeah. And so Chicago was effectively the kind of hub for distribution. And so brands that wanted to go national that were previously local went to Chicago for that network reason. And Chicago is Chicago. I prefer the. I, I, I mean, put it this way. I moved to Chicago, not New York. If I if I went and worked in the States, I, it's a much better city. It's so interesting. It, it, this is one of the critiques that I have um, because my background initially is more in the startup world. Um, so, yeah. so the disruptive startups. Well, actually, and, and, and... being a being a marketing guy with mathematical ability in a startup role is untapped territory. I think there's a huge amount of potential there. Yeah, it used to make me very insecure because I felt like. Um, First, I'm a dropout. I'm a high school dropout, but I feel like I dropped out on the on the right side. Where, where you know, do you drop out from? Where, uh, which university? Tilburg, uh, Tilburg University. We don't well, really I mean, have famous universities. Yeah, that's famous. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> so, so, so um, uh, let me get this right. Tilburg is, I would consider, and I, you know, I know about it through behavioral science, but in terms of the social sciences and psychology, uh, I regard it as one of the best. Uh, the best universities in Europe, you know, alongside ETH, mm. is it ETZ, ETH Zurich, you know, there, mm. there are, now I don't know many European, I know it's weird, there aren't many famous universities in, in continental Europe, but about three of the places, you know, like, uh, I think, uh, um, uh, let me get this right, there's one in Sweden, I think it might be Gottingen in Sweden, but there's a Swedish one, there's a Swiss one, there's a Dutch one, which in terms of, the, what, what's the other great one for the social sciences in Holland? There's Tilburg uh, and there's Eindhoven, perhaps. Eindhoven is more. Yeah, that's right. No, Delft. Delft. You're Delft. talking about Delft, probably. Delft. Delft. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and I see interesting work from those places. So no, no, no. The other thing is, I'll tell you a lovely story. In Silicon Valley, there are a load of people who are gaming the Ivy League system. Okay. Yeah. Now, getting an Ivy League education costs a quarter of a million dollars, and what yeah. they worked out is the letter of admission is free. The degree costs a quarter of a million dollars. The letter of admission is worth 90% of the value of the degree. So oh, they, signal, they, signal value. I'm signal a Harvard value. dropout. I'm yeah. a, Har I'm so, a Stanford so they, dropout. So they actually go to Silicon Valley firms. And they just walk in and they yeah. go, look, I can code this. I can do Python, Java, whatever. Oh, I and look, could, could have I could to go Stanford, to Harvard or Stanford, but, but I'd rather work to. for you. Yes. And people go, yeah, fucking fine. You're bright enough to get into Harvard. There's nothing you're yeah. going to learn at Harvard that is more valuable than what you'll learn here. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, 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 yeah. My 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 own education. That's one of the reasons why I dropped out because, like I said, I come from a background of pre uh, professional athleticism with uh, tricking, and tricking uh, is is very underground. It's kind of like it's starting to uh, become a little bit more popular, and you see it in all the movies right now, all the blockbusters. But it's kind of like skateboarding in the '80s or whatever, you know. So yeah. the people, the and there there's also no money. So if you're doing it and if you're serious, you're doing it for all the right reasons because there's no economic incentive. Yeah. So when so when I went to university and I was surrounded by people who who just wanted um, I I always call it a job passport. Uh, so instead of a degree, it's, it's a passport to a job. Um, yeah. They were they were leaning back, not really paying attention. Even the professors weren't really motivated. So it was a very a very jarring experience. I, I was <coughs> expecting people like you, people with an an off the charts intrinsic motivation, super knowledgeable, you know, and and, and, and like being at the feet of the master, uh, learning. How do you just and now here's another here's another thing, right? If you're two hundred thousand dollars in debt, you can't really take much of a risk, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, okay. Or you've got rich parents, in which case, you know, capitalism isn't doing the job of talent spotting nearly as assiduously as it should be, you know. And um, uh, the interesting thing there is, right? Okay, you could um, effectively. The fact that you're $250,000 in debt is a massive incentive to go into law or corporate finance. And once you go into those things, you're trapped, right? Yeah. You're never going to get out. Yeah, yeah. Peter right. Thiel made that argument. Now, actually, if you don't have a degree, you could actually wander off to it. Now, you know, in order to, in order to validate a $250,000 investment in your education, you've got to go to Silicon Valley or you've got to go to New York, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Actually, maybe the real opportunity, which you can do if you didn't spend all that money and time getting a degree, is you go to Austin, Texas and kick around there. Because actually opportunity may be far greater if you're exploring the informal route rather than the formal route. This is your point that you made at the very beginning of this call again. You know, you're, you're discounting. Uh, um, you're not proper, properly taking into account the opportunity cost. Mm. You're, you're, you're not considering what no, the opportunity the, the... cost is invisible because you've got yeah. three years, okay, where yeah. you could more or less live for free because that's what it would cost you to live at university anyway, right? Yeah. Where you could be saying, okay, Facebook has a formalized Maybe you hang out in a bar where loads of people from Facebook work, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that might be more valuable. Then, that's very um, similar. That's, that's very similar to what I'm doing because I, I basically I, I said, okay, well, screw it. I'll do it the same way that I did it with tricking. I'll, I'll, I'll create my own education. So I started studying your work. I started studying Bill, Be uh, Bill Burnback, Dave, Dave Trotz, um, like everyone. Plus, on top of that, uh, I, I went a step further and I started like actually building relationships. So, so uh, talking to people uh, on Twitter and, and, and DMing and whatnot, and that's that's hugely more you, valuable. I'll tell you why the UK education system will survive actually, which is really interesting, which is learning fluent English is kind of worth $30,000, okay? Mm. So spending three years in an English-speaking country with English-speaking people, okay, is actually more valuable than the education you get. Because this is, wow. I'll, I'll tell you a very interesting complexity theory thing, right, which you'll like, okay? So people, and I always regard that as evidence of people who want to pretend to be intelligent while actually being stupid. People say the British... <laughs> Okay, the British are really bad at learning foreign languages, right? Mm. Now, actually, okay, that's obviously nothing to do with the education system or anything like that, because the Irish are really bad at learning foreign languages. Now, let me, let me explain this, okay, right? So let's imagine you're Dutch, right? Okay, well, first of all, the question is, do I need to learn a foreign language? Now, if you yes. only speak Dutch, the answer is yes, right? Okay, yeah. there's not, you know, because you, know, you go, look, as soon as I leave Holland and Northern Belgium, I won't be able to communicate. I won't even be able to read the road signs if I don't speak a foreign language. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Second question is, which language do I learn? And that's a really easy question because English. you'd learn English yeah. first. Okay. And that's yeah. not because it's the most spoken. It's because it's the most widespread. Okay. So English is going to be useful to you in business. It's going to be useful to you in politics. Okay. Or, or anything else. But it's going to be useful to you pretty much anywhere in the world. So if you ended up in Latin America, you would have been better off learning Spanish, but English is still reasonably useful. Whereas if yeah. you'd learned Arabic and you ended up in South America, you've wasted two years of your life, right? Yeah. And then you get the third one, which is I've got to learn a language bit by bit. Now, A, if you're Dutch, you get English language TV. That helps a bit, 
right? You can speak to your friends in English because they're also learning English. So if you want to get a bit of practice in, you can chat in English to your Dutch friends, right? I, I don't have any English friends who are learning Dutch, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are very few Dutch language subtitle programs on British TV. I mean, I've probably only watched about three. Okay. Swedish, fun enough, because of their crime dramas. We get quite a bit of that. But uh, talk. Um, but, but, um, uh, but, but then, okay, when you go, every word of English you learn makes English more valuable to you. Right. Now, if I went to Holland, it, I'd have to live in Holland for a year before my Dutch. Well, no, I'd have to live there for three years before my Dutch was better than your English or as good as your English. Right. OK, so for the first three I'm still years, I'm still working on your accent. <laughs> for the first three years, I'm living in Holland. This is a further disincentive for the first yeah. three years. I'm living in Holland. Everybody's going to speak to me in English anyway. Right. Because they're better at speaking English than I am at speaking Dutch. So there's a long period where there's zero return on language learning. Yeah. And then the suddenly, OK, if I marry a Dutch girl and I move to Holland at that and I know I'm going to be living in Holland for five years at that yeah. point. OK, the investment pays off. But yeah. to a Dutch person, learning English pays off day one and it's a really easy decision. Yeah. So, so well, what you're saying I still is, can't, is, I still can't decide. You know, I sometimes think, gosh, I'd quite like to learn a language. And for, for as an English speaker, it's really bloody difficult as a decision because a bit of me wants to learn Italian because it sounds great, right? Yeah. You know, Italian sounds not many people speak it, but it does sound fantastic, and it would be quite nice to be able to speak Italian just because Italy's and you know you might go there on holiday or something. Okay, and then you know, some of me wants to learn Spanish. You know, but then the problem would be, well, that's probably the most obvious second choice. But it's not obvious because in anywhere outside Latin America and the Iberian Peninsula, and actually even in Portugal or Brazil, right? Spanish is kind of useless. Right. Yeah. So um, so suddenly, and you know, you get into this problem where it's very difficult as a Brit to say I'm going to learn a language because you can't even decide which one to learn. Yeah. The, the, the incentive structure is completely asymmetrical. Totally asymmetrical. Yeah. Uh, super fascinating. And so I always say, when someone says the English are terrible at learning foreign languages, you know, I think it's a disgrace. I always go, you haven't really thought about this, have you? You're just basically expressing an opinion. That, that's how I feel when people say uh, um, uh, the, the thinly filled insult of um, those who can do, those who can't teach. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's always I how... By by that logic, we should all take our, our our advice on nutrition and health on Instagram models. I know, I know, I know, I know. It's one of those things, isn't it? Which is just it's one of those phrases which is just it's sticky. Uh, it, yeah, it, it it's just a sticky phrase. And uh, teaching, by the way, which I did for a bit, is bloody difficult. Yeah. Oh, um, to, that's to, so true. To yeah. do it, well, I mean, one of the reasons I didn't become a teacher is I thought actually this would be quite a nice life if you did it badly. But I don't want to spend 30 years of my life doing something badly. If you want to do this well, it's really bloody yeah. tiring. You know, it's really, really effortful. Um, by the way... Uh, so I'll, I'll way, give you an example, yeah. okay? If I have a day where I give two presentations over Zoom, I, I really dread that day, okay? I go, oh, God, I've got a presentation in the morning and a, and a seminar in the afternoon, and I'm hosting both of them. I kind of go, oh, fucking hell, two in a day. You know, wow! One, you, you, you know, I thought it, I thought it was easy. It it seems so effortless. It, it, yeah, it's funny. Um, it is. It, it it it's really really weird. I don't quite understand. But, why. By the way, if you, if if you have to run, then I then do have to fine. go. It's it, it's two oh one, so I do have to go in a couple of minutes. But yeah, I don't um, want to keep you. But 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 let me let me have a think. Let's catch up again. Um, and I, I would say that pursuing tech companies and saying, look, I'm a mathematician who does behavioral science, is actually quite an interesting way to go. Interesting. I mean, try it. Um, and um, the other thing is, if you know, if you ever want to work for us, which uh, you know is is by no means impossible. We're just, you know, obviously in COVID, we're not hiring anybody. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we're growing, but you know, WPP doesn't really know how to grow organically, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't really have a mechanism for it. Um, and so, um, it's much easier for WPP to buy a company than it is to grow one itself. Yeah. And. Um, uh, so um, uh, the interesting thing there is that, um, uh, uh, you know, but, but I mean, uh, my point about the degree, if you, if you, if, if, if you, I've said this about mathematicians, someone came to me who couldn't get any job interviews because they got a third in maths from Cambridge, right? And I said, look, 
I said, mate, I said, if you can get into Cambridge to do maths, right? First of all, I haven't come across anything in my work that a third class mathematician from Cambridge couldn't solve, but a first class mathematician could. I'm sure there are things, but I've never come across one in my entire 30 years of my career. Secondly, if you did come across that, the fact that you went to Cambridge to do maths means you presumably know a load of people who got first class degrees in maths from Cambridge and you could ring one of them up and ask them to help, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it works in the real world. You're not, you're allowed to cheat in the real world. Yeah, I was interesting to put a, a, a cash value on learning fluent English. And therefore, I would argue that every single British university is to an American university, but they're much more expensive. If I were Ireland, I'd make a fortune out of this because essentially your university is a language school plus a university. Now, it used to happen. You won't believe this. Okay? I had a friend who went to Manchester Business School in the late 1980s. And there are a load of Japanese students there and they all passed. Okay. And they, none of them put in very much work. They, you know, they're pretty, now, this is really weird. You're going, you know, the Japanese are lazy. What the hell's going on here? You know, I've never, you know, I've thought many things about the Japanese. I've never thought lazy bastards, right? Okay. Okay. But they generally didn't work very hard. And this guy said, what, what's actually going on here? Because you're not really taking the MBA course as seriously as we are. Yeah. And they basically explained they're sent there by their company for two reasons. And bear in mind, this is the late 80s, before the Japanese crash, okay? One of them was to learn English, because by living in Manchester for three years, they become fluent in English, right? Or reasonably fluent in English, and by being taught in English and everything else. Yeah. The third reason was to get a business qualification and to learn more about business. The second reason they were being sent there to learn to play golf. Because at the time, golf courses in Japan were so expensive. If you wanted, now golf was essential to your progress in Japanese business because wow. Japanese business in 1988 took place on the golf course. It was a totally male, totally patriarchal thing. And if you wanted to do a deal with someone, you went and played golf, right? And it was really expensive to learn how to play golf because golf club membership would cost something like, you know, 200,000 euros. So it was cheaper to send them to Manchester Business School and get them to join a Manchester golf club, right, than it was to get them to learn in Japan. Wow. And so the order was learn English, learn golf, learn business. Oh, that's too good. Um, yeah, I got one more question, but I don't want to keep you if you have to run right now. I've got, I, I, I can give it two more minutes, no problem. Ask, ask away. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on, on uh, lead acquisition if you're early stage like me? Really interesting. Um, because I'm figuring out my, my uh, positioning and whatnot. I have a few people that really, really like my work, the, the so-called true fans. Um, but right now I'm, I'm figuring out all of the, the positioning stuff. and, and, and uh, Your mathematical ability combined with your uh, behavioral science and psychology ability, um, mm -hmm. I would say uh, uh, if you can find a really good data science AI company, because my argument is that data science without behavioral science is actually a bit of a dead end because mm. you're understanding what people are doing without any explanatory power over why they're doing it. And so, so there might be a really good niche, admittedly it'd be a paid job, not a business, but mm. there might be a really interesting way before you start your business, spend three years in a data science company combining the two, and then you've got the basis for a fantastic business. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, you know, if maths is, if you really love maths, it was the university you didn't like, not the maths, right? Yeah, that's true. I still do math. Uh, although, although I, I am more focused on like pure mathematics, which is, it's, it's, it's different than applied mathematics. It's basically like, you know, if well, it's useful, then we, then we don't do it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, number, yeah. exactly. Number theory, group theory, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, it's all you. It's it's philosophy at that level, isn't it? Really, um, but um, but I mean, if you've got a good statistical grasp, uh, you know, and you can do the kind of you know the, you know the regressiony stuff and all that stuff, okay. Um, you know, presumably, if you can do the pure maths, you can do that stuff standing on your head. I would guess. Yeah, right now, most of my work is focused on uh, helping helping. My work uh, centers around like how to design a better company. So a lot of my work um, revolves around helping founders uh, or people who run a company create a better company 
through through the things like uh, behavior designs and, and creative solutions, beha uh, behavioral economics and whatnot. Uh, so so mathematics is quite light, although I use it sometimes as a metaphor. Or, but I, I, Before you start your own business, I do three years in paid employment in some role, which allows you to combine the two. Interesting. And then from there, there's a great thing about maths as a measure of ability, by the way. I noticed this at university because my brother was at the same university as me, and he was a mathematician and and, and astrophysicist and we hang out we hung out with a lot of mathematicians and the interesting thing there's a wonderful story about Ramanujan you've probably come across this Indian mathematician yeah. who wrote to G.H. Hardy right yeah. now G.H. Hardy used to get like a load of letters from people with weird theories and he generally go oh god it's a nutter right yeah. <laughs> but he had one advantage he said ultimately he said it's harder to fake being a great mathematician than it is to be one now, in most wow. disciplines, it's easier to fake it than it is to do it, right? Yeah. But in mathematics, yeah. I had a guy, and we, I love this guy, I kept Googling him, I wonder what happened to him. Tot totally working class guy, but a maths prodigy at Cambridge. And um, he, he arrived, his dad was a lorry driver. So when he arrived, the lorry drove into the college and he offloaded his trunk from the back of the lorry because his dad was a lorry driver, right? And genuinely working class background, you know, and... Um, uh, he, he, the Cambridge Maths Tripos is two days in a row, morning after three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, three hours in the morning, three hours in the, in the afternoon. It's pretty hardcore. Four, you know, two days, six hours of maths in every day. He used to come back at lunchtime and have a couple of pints. <laughs> and even my brother, who is a pretty naturally talented mathematician, my brother said, Hold on, but you've got an exam this afternoon and you, you're drinking beer? And he go, Yeah, it helps me relax. <laughs> Wow. What the <laughs> fuck? Right? Yeah. And he, he, he got a double first. He got he starred first, everything else. Because he just naturally, he just found it really easy. Oh, interesting. You know, and I, 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 I've always been in awe of mathematicians for that because it's something you can't fake. You know, you've either got it or you haven't, basically. Uh, and my, my brother was kind of going, but you, you got an exam, you know, is it, was it Kevin Atkins? You got an exam in the afternoon, you're drinking beer. He goes, yeah, yeah, just relaxes me. And he'd just go in and there'd be some set theory question. He'd be there after a pint, <laughs> you know, just scribbling away. I mean, I was just, I, okay, I, this is, this I, is. I um, do I do feel I do feel that um, most people think math mathematics is um, much harder than it than it actually is. It, it is hard, but um, most of the hardness um, is an artifact of that. Uh, is that just the teaching is so bad? We we do such a poor job of explaining it. Well, because if you if you're if you explain it very clearly and and you're able to get like that aha moment in someone's brain, um, it all becomes super obvious. It'd be really interesting if my brother and I ever got together to write a maths textbook which teaches you in, you're absolutely right. Because the other thing I've always wondered, I never know about look at, this. Is... Look at YouTube right now. You have all of these people who are studying mathematics and, and while they're studying, they're creating content. They don't have the, the time constraints that a professor has, so they can uh, really do their best on creating very good content and very good uh, um, uh, 3D, uh, 3D uh, uh, um, objects and whatnot in a video. And, it, and, and you just see the appetite. These channels have millions of subscribers. <clears throat> they make it very easy to understand because in a book, you know, you have these pictures and, and like all the, the whole textbook yeah. industry is a scam. The books aren't even good. And No, no it, they are terrible. I agree. Yeah. I agree. This is really interesting because I always wonder about this, which is I'm no good at chess. My brother, actually, who you might expect as a kind of maths nerd to be good at chess, isn't any good at chess. And to be honest, I, I always wonder, is it because we're not interested or is it because we're no good? Yeah, I, I 100% I've always think wondered, it's, it's, it's the part. I think it is because I, I don't want to be the kind of person who's a good chess player for some reason. You need, you need to read uh, Chamberlain. Ch Cham I believe his name is Chamberlain. Uh, Chamberlain's paper on uh, the, the extraordinary tediousness of success or something like that. It, it's a paper from the 60s. Have you, have you read it? No, I haven't. I'd love to read that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he wanted to study success, and um, he needed to find a way to control all the uh, in, uh, uh, independent variables. So he st he uh, studied swimmers, Olympic swimmers, um, and and basically his conclusion was like, there there is no talent. Talent is this vague uh, concept that we use to to hide behind. But uh, it, it it's more um, it's more about conscientiousness and developing uh, good practices and good 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 systems and focusing on that.
which Daniel is it's Kahneman, very interesting. Daniel Kahneman said that wanting to be a great actor or a great sportsman is the worst thing you can do for your happiness because you'll almost certainly fail. OK, because Scott Adams, have you read Scott Adams on his thing about being good at two related things? Yeah, you because said that you as well could, in a video. Yeah, no, I came to the conclusion. I didn't realize Scott Adams had said this. And I always feel a bit of a plagiarist, but I came up with it totally independently, which is at the intersection of two things. You can find things out that nobody else is doing. Whereas if you, yeah. unless you're incredibly lucky, there's only room for about 20 great tennis players at any one time, you know. I mean, once you get down to like number 207 in the world, these guys are living out of their cars, right? Okay. Yeah. All the gains go to the very top. And so Power Scott Adams off. thing is absolutely right. I think it's really, really interesting. April Dunford makes this exact point in positioning for companies. She's like, you know, really, really uh, dial in on who the audience is and the exact value proposition. And then you have the intersection in a Venn diagram that's super unique. So then you're competing against like this big person and, and, and they do like a CRM or whatever. And, and it's a general purpose. It's for everyone. But you're like, yeah, but we specialize in investment banks. So yeah. you, they can't. That's good if you want to be like everyone. But if you want something that's unique for you. Because actually, uh, and also, uh, it actually means if you're good at two things, you can reweight depending on how circumstances change. So yeah. I sort of parlayed an interest in technology and direct marketing into an interest in the internet. And then I parlayed an interest in the internet and, and technology and direct marketing into an interest in behavioral science. Okay? Mm. And so you can, you can effectively evolve two skills into a third skill but you can't evolve one skill into another into a second and mm. so yeah it's really i'm oh, sorry i better dash now because it's nearly quarter past but it's a really really interesting thing it's a fascinating point i think i'll look up that chamberlain paper if you could email me the extraordinary tediousness of success I'd be do, you, really do you prefer do you prefer email or twitter dm uh either whichever you prefer either's fine right. I, yeah i use both what Each, a pleasure thank Thanks stay in touch. Time. Whatever you do, stay in touch. It'll be fantastic. Thanks Will ever do. so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What are we doing here?